Well, good morning. Uh, if you are visiting us this morning, you might be surprised to hear that we actually haven't gotten to the sermon yet. Uh, so it's my privilege to speak to you for the next two hours or so. Um, but if you're just jumping in, uh, we have been going through our, our study, a, a summer Bible jam, uh, studying through God's big picture, just tracing the storyline of the Bible. So we've, we've been making a broad sweep through the entire redemptive story that the Bible tells. And, and, and this will be our second week now zooming in on this particular period of biblical history called the prophesied kingdom. And we saw last week that, that God sent prophets. He, he used prophets to insert his voice into history. The author would speak into the story and, and he would remind us of who we are, where we're heading, and what we need to know. And God used prophets to call his people to return to the covenant that made a claim on them. And so we spent some time in, in the book of Jeremiah and heard his plea for the people to repent of their idolatry and come again to the Lord. But we're probably more familiar with the role of prophets as those who foretold what God would do in the future. And, and we need this ministry as well. Prophets would, they would locate the people of God on the redemptive timeline. They would remind them about their past, but they would also proclaim hope for the days ahead. And the old word in the Bible for a prophet is a seer. Uh, prophecy is the gift of sight. It, it is the kindness of God extending our vision beyond the limitations of our present vantage point. God turns on the high beams to allow us to see farther down a road that was hidden in darkness. You know, it's an internet trend these days to, to post pictures of ridiculous church signs. And I once saw one that, that read, prophecy class canceled due to unforeseen circumstances. <laughs> Apparently the irony of that sign was also unforeseen. Uh, but the reality is, for us, circumstances are always unforeseen. Right? Apart from divine insight, we don't know what the future holds. But that doesn't stop us from pretending like we do. But the thing is, when we make our, our predictions, it, it typically doesn't look good. Ed Welch has described anxiety as a form of false prophecy. It's oriented toward the future, but you become a misfortune teller. He says, worriers are visionaries minus the optimism. You know, it, it doesn't matter that you're consistently wrong, worry enough, and by sheer probability, eventually one of your predictions will come true. And then you'll now use this event to justify all of your future worrying. You're like, you're like a con tarot card reader who happens to get some of the vague details correct. But our distorted views of the future affect everything else. And anxiety can wear multiple masks. It, it can show up as control. You're scared of how things will turn out, and so you try to force circumstances and manipulate people as a form of self-protection. And when people don't cooperate with this, control can give way to anger. You, you view them as threats that need to be neutralized. And so you use your words and your actions in order to keep them in line. But this can dress up in nicer clothes. It can look like a hyper-intentional approach to life. But beneath all the planning and the activity is the frightening assumption that it depends on you to deliver. 
and you can bring this into your parenting as well. You're, you're super involved and ultra protective and, and it looks like love, but if you're to take a closer look, it is love that is mixed with fear. How will they turn out if you don't ensure that they have everything that you think that they need? On the other end of the spectrum, you can become unattached to life. You're unmotivated and depressed. You're, you're trying, you're, you're tired of trying to fix what you've concluded is now unfixable and there doesn't seem to be much reason to keep going. And then there's just pure fear. You feel like you live in an irrational world of a horror film. Anything goes. Nothing prevents the worst from happening in your life. And the thing is, you can find data that matches this, right? The, the events of this week, news headlines of mass shootings, stories of home invasions, people who were kidnapped and kept in a room for 10 years. It feels like at any moment you could become a statistic. And in all of these things, anxiety is an attempt to grapple with the realities of a fallen world. It recognizes that things are not as they should be. As we've said this morning, we're, we're often confronted by danger and sorrow and disappointment. And this is true to our experience. But it treats fallenness as inevitable, as if it's the only chapter in the storyline. There's no redemptive hope. So Ed Welch says, there is an entire worldview implicit in some worry. It cries out about an ultimate aloneness. There is no one who can really help. No one can rescue. No one is really looking out for you. You are an orphan in a chaotic universe that operates according to chance. Who wouldn't be worried given such a view of reality? So here's the question we've been considering in, in our our series this summer. What kind of story are we in? Right, we're characters in some sort of storyline. Is it a cosmic accident, like a novel that was produced by monkeys on a typewriter? Or is it getting written along the way? Is the author taken by surprise? Is he caught off guard by the plot? Or was it scripted out long ago? with an author who has good designs, who even allows you to peek at the end. You see, worry and cynicism underestimate the principle of grace in the future. As the hymn says, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And in the Bible, God sends prophets to proclaim this hope to his people. They bring reminders of God's past faithfulness and declarations of his future deliverance. Paul House says, accurate mediator of God's will, interpreter of the world, and herald of lavish, even shocking grace. This was the prophet. And our case study for this today will be the prophet Isaiah. So you can go ahead and turn to that book. This book opens by describing itself as the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, and, and God allows Isaiah to see the intervention and care that he will bring to his people. Isaiah's name means the Lord saves, and that's the message of this book, but it's a salvation that will come in stages. 
Isaiah stands on the shores of time, and from across a a 200-year ocean, he sees the relief that God is going to bring to Israel through a man named Cyrus. But this is only the foreshadowing of God's rescue. Through Revelation, Isaiah zooms in further to 700 years following his time, and he witnesses the Lord's servant giving himself as a ransom for his people. But then he peels his eyes over the horizon and he's shown eternity itself, a new heaven and a new earth that is just waiting to reach us as the world makes its final rotation and all is made well. There is a good ending to the story although we stare at it from afar. So we're gonna look at these three scenes in the book as Isaiah helps us to see that God routes the future, he redeems the faithless, and he reverses the fall. And in all these, there's what we need most this week, which is a word of hope. So turn to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah begins as Jeremiah does, diagnosing the ways that God has been displaced in the lives of his people, and the Lord says he's going to bring judgment on them for their unfaithfulness. He will send them packing in exile to Babylon, but he will not abandon them there. And so Isaiah foresees not only how Israel will be be removed from the land, but how God will arrange for them to return. And in, in, in doing so, he brings a word of mercy to them. They will not always experience dislocation and captivity. In the same way that God wielded nations to discipline his, his people, he will again orchestrate the global scene, this time ensuring that they are brought home. And so Isaiah sets for us a pattern here that we see throughout the prophets. Graham Goldsworthy writes, the writing prophets all do three things. First, they identify the specific ways in which Israel has broken the covenant. These include social injustice and oppression, insincere worship of God, mixing pagan religion with the true faith revealed by God, and even worship of false gods. Second, they pronounce the judgment of God on this unfaithfulness to the covenant. We saw those elements last Sunday. Third, they speak a message of comfort to the faithful. God will yet save them completely, finally, and gloriously. So let's read together Isaiah 43, verse 5. The Lord says, fear not, for I am with you, right? That's the condition of fear and anxiety that prophecy addresses. So God begins to speak in the future tense. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. No matter where his children are scattered, in every direction, God will see to it that they return. They will not be lost forever. But notice the reason. Verse seven, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God has attached his glory to this people and he will not cast away his glory. And throughout these chapters, he says again and again that he is saving them for the sake of his own name. 
And this is instructive for us because this is how the Bible comforts us. Right? It, it, it probably sounds a little strange to our ears. I mean, doesn't God just want us for us? You know, it, it might seem assuring to locate the reason for God keeping us in something inside of us until we remember who we are, until we remember our inconsistency and half-heartedness and how we are prone to worship everything under the sun besides our maker. If you connect the reason why God will be good to you in the future in something about you, and your choices or your impressive behavior will welcome to a world of worry because you are unpredictable, even to yourself, especially to the people around you. But, but a God who is motivated from within, who accomplishes everything for his own pleasure, who is unswervingly committed to his own self-exaltation, that is the definition of consistency. Thankfully for us, God has deeper reasons for what he does than the shallowness of our own behavior. And these are reasons as deep as his eternal will. And so God convinces them of his sovereign decree. Verse 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God, and henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? When God is determined to do something, it is irreversible. And, and friends, this is the way that God knows the future. Right? This is how prophecy works. God doesn't need to look into some sort of crystal ball and, and find out what's going to happen. You're like, okay, I, I see a lot of people. You know, that's, that's Israel. And, and, and look, they're, they're coming back. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad the Persians found it in their heart to do that. Uh, no. And, and he's not some sort of supercomputer running the numbers and doing his best to make reliable predictions. No, he is the creator He's the storyteller and he's able to cause everything to unfold just as he desires. And that is good news because he'll never fail to bring about what he has promised. Michael Williams says, while God certainly knows the future exhaustively, precognition in itself is not very significant. Knowing the future is not the same as having the power to effect the future. And that is precisely what the prophetic word about the future concerns. The message of biblical prophecy is that God is faithful to his promises and able to see to it that his promises come to fulfillment. And in the book of Isaiah, this is how God distinguishes himself from every cheap counterfeit. He challenges the idols to declare ahead of time what's going to take place. And so he says in chapter 46, I am God and there's no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things not yet done. How do you do that, God? How do you know how it's all gonna end? Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And so Isaiah 43 highlights not just God's knowledge of what's going to happen as if he relates to that in some sort of passive way, but his ability to control all circumstances and people. Look at verse 14. 
Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I sent to Babylon. Right? Notice who's doing the action here. And I bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. History is not just the inevitable unfolding of time and chance. Behind it all, there is the personal agency of the sovereign. And, and, and here, this is amazing. It, it's so unexpected because from the vantage point of God's people at this point in time, it seems so impossible that when it happens, they will know that only the Lord could have done it. Because for the benefit of this little pathetic nation named Judah, that at this point most people in Babylon have never even heard of, God will turn proud Babylonians into scared fugitives running down to their ships to escape their conquerors. It's the kind of thing he always loves to do. And one of his commentaries, Dale Ralph Davis, mentions something that happened before the death of the Roman Emperor Julian in the fourth century AD. And Julian was one of the emperors who despised and hated and persecuted Christians. And, and he ended up being mortally wounded in a battle with the Persians. But while Julian's uh, conquests were still in progress, uh, one of his followers mockingly asked a Christian in Antioch what the carpenter's son was doing while all this was happening, and the Christian replied, the maker of the world, whom you call the carpenter's son, is employed in making a coffin for the emperor. <laughs> and within days, news came to Antioch of Julian's death. And here, Isaiah sees Babylon showing up arrogant and taunting the people of God, and as effortlessly as God has brought them into Israel's land, he will send them out of theirs. And it's a pattern that shows up all over this book. In chapter seven, the Lord just whistles for the Egyptians. In chapter 10, God is described as wielding Assyria like a hammer or an ax. They're like a tool in his hand that does exactly what he wants. And when he is finished, he will toss them aside. In chapter 37, the Lord tells Sennacherib that he will put a hook in his nose and a bit in his mouth and he will turn him back on the way that he came. And in chapter 45, God says that he will take a blissfully unaware man named Cyrus and grab him by the hand and send him to subdue nations and rebuild cities for Israel's benefit. There is no one like your God and we should behold him here. But can you imagine the kind of orchestration that is required to achieve this? to rearrange nations and relocate armies and rewrite maps to channel kings' hearts like water and move upon the wills of political leaders to accomplish everything he desires and everything happens right on cue and just like clockwork from the grand scale to the smallest decision. And listen, that's true for us. Right, let's not just think about this having to do with countries we couldn't even locate in a geography class. Let's, let's make it personal. Where does life show up taunting you? Where does it appear resistant and unmotivated? And maybe you'd say, you don't know my husband. It's like at some point he just stopped pretending to care. He's no longer motivated to change. 
or my young adult children don't seem to want to have anything to do with me, much less the Lord. They just shut down the conversations I initiate. Or my boss or coworkers seem set against me. They, they interpret everything I do with criticism and malice. And you experience these things again and again, bumping up against immovable life realities. Where does life feel impossible? God wants us to see that when he's at work, there are no obstacles standing in his way. Look at how he continues, verse 16. Thus says the Lord who made a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior, they lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself. Why? That they might declare my praise. Right, and the word pictures here are, are crystal clear. God is not bound by any natural limitations. He, he makes a way in the sea. He supplies water in the desert. He's able to provide for his people in the most unyielding circumstances. And so what Isaiah does here is he rehearses their history. He reminds them of their story. As we've studied, he's referring to the exodus and the wilderness wanderings. When Israel came up upon the shores of the, of the Red Sea and they were closed in by an encroaching Egyptian army, a pathway suddenly appeared before them. When they thirsted in the desert, God chose a rock of all things to give his wa people water to drink. The Lord uses these as a reference point, but then he directs their attention toward the future. He says, don't just focus on the past because he's going to do a new thing. And that's just astounding. He, he's not limited to stale ideas. He never has to look at your situation and just reuse an old plan. That's the kind of ability and creative surprise that he can leverage in our lives. He makes a universe out of nothing. He can certainly bring good out of situations that look like they have nothing to offer. So consider this. Where are you most tempted to use the word hopeless? Is it persistent infertility? Joblessness, finances that never seem to add up, family members that are resistant to the gospel. Maybe it's the brokenness of our nation, torn apart by racial division, marred by violence. Maybe the, the conditions of our secular age are exasperating, right? The, the disinterest, the antagonism, the shutting of their ears to God's word, legislation that's being put forward that seeks to silence churches and violate Christian consciences, and this is the people that we're called to reach. It just seems impossible, and it is, except with God. 
all things are possible. Christians shouldn't be the people who say things like, it'll always be this way. Things will never change. That's just false prophecy. And worse, it's unbelief. You're only willing to take into account natural, visible barriers like a shoreline when there's a God who makes a way through the waters. There's one day when Martin Luther was bemoaning the conditions of the world and the state of the church and the anxieties that his life uh, were, were confronting. And uh, so his, his wife, Katie, who was just a unique woman, what she decided to do is she, she dressed in black like she was in mourning. And he turned to her and asked, oh, who died? And she said, oh, haven't you heard? Apparently God in heaven has died given how you're acting. <laughs> we need women like that. Uh, we lose sight of God. We forget that he loves to reroute fallen trajectories. He's directing the future toward redemption. God will restore his people and he will do so where it matters most. You know, why does Israel even find themselves facing exile here? It's because of their own neglect and disobedience. But even the misfortune that has been brought by our own hands, God delights to reverse. And, and we see this principle most clear in the cross of Christ. And that's the second scene that Isaiah brings us to. We see that God redeems the faithless. So if you turn over to chapter 53, there is a greater exile, a greater dislocation from which we need to return while Israel is seeking relief from their oppressors, they require so much more than just political liberation. The problem runs deeper. The enemies from which we need to be delivered are not just on the outside of us. And so this passage puts us in front of the mirror. Look at what he says in verse six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And there's an awareness in this text that we must experience if we're going to receive its remedy. In order to know that you need to be found, you first have to realize that you have wandered off long ago and gotten lost. Uh, I once saw a headline from the Toronto Sun that read, missing woman unwittingly joins search party looking for herself. This is what it says. A group of tourists spent hours Saturday night looking for a missing woman near Iceland's Elja Canyon only to find her among the search party. The group was traveling through Iceland on a tour bus and stopped near the volcanic canyon in the southern highlands on Saturday afternoon. One of the women on the bus left to change her clothes and freshen up. When she came back, her busmates didn't recognize her. Soon there was word of a missing passenger. The woman didn't recognize the description of herself and joined in the search. About 50 people searched the terrain by vehicles on foot. Uh, the, the Coast Guard was even readying a helicopter to help, but the search was called off at about 3 a.m. when it became clear the missing woman was, in fact, accounted for and searching for herself. All right, that, that's the kind of incident that can only happen to Canadians. Uh, but just like this woman, we can fail to recognize the description of ourselves in this passage. Do you see yourself in this text? 
You aware of your unique contribution to humanity's problem? That this doesn't just apply to the world out there, but the waywardness in here? You know, earlier in the book of Isaiah, he confesses not just that he lives among a people of unclean lips, and we do, but he says, I am a man of unclean lips. And we see that expressed again here. We all collectively have gone astray and we have turned everyone personally to his own way. We've come up with our own definition and direction to life and we've wandered off into it thinking that that will fulfill us as we've turned our backs on our maker. Charles Spurgeon says, there is a peculiar sinfulness about every one of the individuals. All are sinful, but each one with some special aggravation not found in his fellow. It is the mark of genuine repentance that while it naturally associates itself with other penitents, it also feels that it must take up a position of loneliness. We have turned everyone to his own way is a confession importing that each man had sinned against light peculiar to himself or sinned with an aggravation which he at least could not perceive in his fellow. Do you have this awareness? How particularly you are a sinner. You know, when we sing songs like we did this morning about God's forgiveness and his grace on our lives, do you think about these things generically? Or are there specific attitudes and practices that come to mind? And whether or not you think that mercy is a big deal will have everything to do with this. You aware of your failures? Ways you have murmured your complaints? Given yourself to greed? Allowed yourself to live in discontent? Have you returned again and again to bad habits and laziness and a lack of self-control? How you've harbored an attitude of hate toward those you've called to love or given place to racism in your heart or been self-righteous in your judgments, how you've neglected God's interest in your life and in this world? Do you experience godly sorrow for these things? Because there is a taking of personal responsibility in this text. And notice how this is described. Like sheep, we've gone astray. This is just the, the thoughtlessness of sin, wandering about unaware of the dangers in this world. But he also says we have turned everyone to our own way. This is the deliberateness of sin, the purposeful rejecting of God's plan and coming up with our own ideas for satisfaction and pleasure. We have a stupid tendency towards sin and we have a willing embrace of sin. We fall into it and we throw ourselves into it. This is the human condition. But more than that, this is you and me. And we are guilty. There are no excuses to bring into this passage. But look at what comes next. It's just totally counterintuitive. And the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. Right, the, the hammer of God's wrath falls and we realize that we are spared as it lands on someone else. And ever since the fall, there's a human tendency to look for a scapegoat, which explains a lot of the relational tensions that we encounter. We see that showing up in Genesis 3. We blame the people around us. We, we become aggravated at them, and we start to see them as the explanation for why life is heading in the direction that it is. It's a way of forgetting our own faults. And you can do that in society you know, blaming the other for what's wrong with the world, whether that's the other race or the other political party. But you can also do that to your family and friends. Right, life's got you shaken. You're aware of things you've done wrong, consequences that you might face because of how you've messed up. And so you lash out on the people around you. Or you just go, grow cold in your affections because you see them as the reason why you can't have good things. Right, what's going on here? In our frustrations and anger, that they, they are the surfacing of our consciousness that we fail to measure up. Guilt is screaming in our ears. We, we need someone to unload this burden upon. We need somewhere to put it. And if you don't live in the realities of the gospel, you will unload it on the people that you love all the time but a substitute was already chosen for us. And the, and the pronouns are emphatic in the Hebrew text and for good reason. Notice the, the contrast between the third person singular and the first person plural. It's almost dissonant. Verse five, he was pierced, not for his transgressions, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. We bring the sin, he takes the shame. He receives the blame, we get the benefit. It doesn't make sense until you understand how mercy operates. Right, this is the principle of redemption. You see the story of humanity plummeting toward destruction and then the plot takes a sudden turn. Ed Welch says, sound too good to be true? Please understand that when God speaks in ways that are completely contrary to our expectations, then we have encountered something genuine. No one could ever invent a God who in response to rebellion is so generous that he gives his entire kingdom. Since this is too good to be true, it must be true. This indeed must be the Holy One. And who is this? Who is this one that Isaiah is speaking of who suffered in our place? Well, as you track through this section of the book, there's this certain character that emerges. He's described as the Lord's servant and he's not Isaiah he's not Israel he's not Cyrus although they are all described as the Lord's servant at some point in the book but this is a role that one person uniquely fulfills and he's the one the entire storyline of the Bible is searching for and of course we know him as Jesus Yeshua like Isaiah his name means the Lord saves 
Earlier in the book in chapter 7, Isaiah prophesies that a virgin will give birth to a son whose name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And in chapter 9, a child will be born who will sit on David's throne and who will be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. And in chapter 11, the chopped off stump of Jesse that at this point in time just looks lifeless. It doesn't look promising at all. If you look at the state of the Davidic line, it will one, one, one day shoot forth with a righteous branch that will reign as a new Davidic king. Isaiah gathers up all of the hope and all of the longings and all of the expectations and the need for rescue that God's people experience and he launches them like arrows toward one particular target. This is what the prophets do. 1 Peter 1 verse 10 says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. But from their vantage point in redemptive history, from their place in the storyline, they stare at the Lord's salvation from afar. And sometimes the time frame isn't that clear. You, you know, if you read the prophets by themselves, sometimes it, it's difficult to distinguish what, what's addressing their own day and, and what's speaking to what's gonna take place later on in the future. It, it, it's like the prophets looked out on a mountain range and from a distance, everything looked flat, and you couldn't tell that there were actually these valleys that separate the mountains, and, 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 and so it just looks like one horizon, and you don't realize that, that not everything comes at once. And so Isaiah talks about the return after the exile, the coming of the Messiah, and the renovation of the world, and it sounds like these things will all happen at the same time. But God brings his people back from the land of Babylon and they return to the land and they rebuild the temple and as they lay the foundation, the, the young men rejoice and it says the old men who were old enough to remember what the temple that Solomon built looked like, they wept because of how small the size was. This really can't be it, can it? This really isn't the final deliverance that we're hoping for. And so they wait another 400 years before Jesus arrives. And then he comes and he dies and he rises and he ascends to his father and once more we are waiting for our final hope. So turn to Isaiah chapter 65. We are brought all the way to the edge here. To the final end and beginning of everything. In chapter 64, Isaiah pleads with God to rend the heavens and come down. He wants God to rip apart the sky like a curtain so that he can step into our world with his presence and renewal. And in chapter 65, God tells Isaiah that's exactly what he intends to do. Eventually. You know, we live in a world and a culture that trains us to only care about the things that are right before our eyes or five minutes from now on our schedules. It's a world of instant commentary in which we look for solutions that can fit in the 140 character limit of a Twitter post. We, we want answers right away. 
But most things are not fixed so quickly or easily. But in the, in the Christian storyline, the best things are final things. And so God calls his people to patience. Delroth Davis says, constitutionally, the Lord's people have trouble with the long haul position. We eagerly grab at the sudden solution or the quick finish. One wonders if Lord Percy was doing that in August of 1776 when after the American troops had abandoned Brooklyn and drifted away in a thick fog, he wrote, everything seems to be over with them. This business is pretty near over. Well, maybe not. Although, I don't know, maybe in the 2016 election cycle, it finally will be over, who knows. Uh, in any case, we are not thrilled by the call to ongoing obedience and long-term endurance. We want a God with microwavable ways and imminent solutions. We want relief from trials now. We expect Christian maturity now. We demand answers to prayers now. And God says to us, now this is what I'm going to do, but not right away. Hunker down and settle into a long faithfulness toward your final hope. But we don't always do well with the long faithfulness approach, do we? We want instant success in our efforts. We want fast relief from life's problems. We want immediate answers to tragedies. But God doesn't fix everything in this life. Don't be disillusioned by that. Sometimes he surprises us by injecting a foretaste of heaven. Today, sometimes he gives us a glimpse of what's to come and sometimes the only thing you see here and now is stuff falling apart. Will you still be faithful if everything tanks? If the very thing you most want to be different doesn't show any signs of changing. You know, the reality is Isaiah didn't live to see anything that he prophesies about. His life ends under the persecution of King Manasseh who is described as filling Jerusalem from one end to another with innocent blood. And we think we have it bad here. Hebrews 11 is probably referring to Isaiah when he mentions those who were sawn in two. But that's not the end of his story or ours. Let's read verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. No more troubling times. God will recreate the world. He will reverse the curse. Nothing will remain unchanged. The sorrows of this life will be a distant memory in danger of being forgotten. Only the good that they have produced in us 
will remain. This is the day of healing and restoration, cancer and sickness and oppression and death itself will be swallowed up with limitless life. And the operative word here is joy. God will create a city of joy, a place where there's festival and celebration and rest from everything that wearies and all of the darkness and the danger that have intruded into life because of the fall will be sent away into exile. And peace will reign in the land. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. All enmity is put away. And then he says, and dust shall be the serpent's food. The serpent is going to bite the dust. And this puts us back in Genesis 3, right? The curse that was laid on the serpent was that he would crawl on the ground and he would taste the dirt, but the promise was that one day the woman's seed would come and he would drive his heel down onto his head and he would bury his fangs into the earth. We would no longer feel the bite of the snake. The enemy will no longer be a threat. And violence will be forever put away. Verse 25, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And oh my, do we need this news. Kurt, you can go ahead and come back up, man. You know, like everyone else, I was grieved by the events of this week. Seven lives that were tragically ended and, and yet there's this sense that what we've heard about this week has come to be unsurprising. We just have the constant publication of data that this is a cursed and confused world. Just joining the, the constant feed of headlines. It's like the song of death is on this loop. It has this unending playback and it is an exasperating noise. I just felt heavy this week. I don't know, for many of this is just new reason for anxiety. Understandably, there are African American and law enforcement families that are experiencing fear, wondering, is, is my father, my son, my family members gonna come home alone, alive? And so for you, these news items, they just get added on to the long list of things that already exist to worry about in this life. And the rest of us look on in sadness and discouragement. Will, will the hatred, will the violence, will death always win? But friends, we're given here the end of the story, right? It's not always gonna be this way. He's shown it to us ahead of times. And in these troubling times, we may live with persistent hope. 
And so let's stand for justice. Let's be light in dark places. Let's look to a God who reigns. Let's be living proof of his compassionate presence in this world. And let us look and long for the future day when everything is made right. Let's not become overwhelmed and exhausted. Right? We grieve tragedies. We weep with those who weep and we endure onward in our calling in this fallen world as we wait for God to make all things new. Let's stand together. Where have you located your hope? Is it something is it in something that you can see just from your natural vantage point? Just the visible natural stuff of this life that is immediately accessible to us, that we can touch, that we can reach out our hand and grab. And if only I could just change this, and if only this person would respond, and if only our nation would do this. Is that where your hope resides? Are you left abandoned just to your own thoughts as you rehearse in your mind the anxieties? If you think that maybe if I think about it a little bit longer, it'll make a difference, something will change. God has given us something so much better to locate our hope in. And it's something that we would never be able to do, that we would never be able to predict. It takes revelation. It takes a merciful God pulling back the veil, stepping into our world of redemption and showing us there's a reason to be hopeful. There is a bright future that awaits us if we receive his answer. This is what Isaiah says in chapter 55 verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts, this is good news, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Where are your thoughts this week? Here's my question for you. Do you know the Lord? And she listened a moment ago to Carmen's story and Ellie's story and how they described having vague ideas and thoughts about God and what he calls us to and his purposes. And yet there was a moment in time when that picture became clear and they realized that's not just something that can exist outside of me anymore. That's something, that's a rescue that I need in here. There, there is real sin and real guilt and real dislocation from a holy God that I've encountered, that I've experienced, and there is real good news that addresses that. There's a Savior.
there's someone who brings an eternal hope. And he brings his invitation here. He says, come to me. Forsake your ways. Forsake empty pursuits. I'm a God who pardons. I'm a God who, who brings rich forgiveness and I'm just waiting to dump it onto your life to bring you into my blessing if you receive it. Don't you see what I've done? He's walked among us. He's carried our hurts. He's known our griefs. He has borne our condemnation. By his stripes, we can be healed. Maybe some of us, God is calling you to himself. Maybe for the first time. Maybe he's calling you you thought you've known him, you thought you were following him with your life and you realize I, I, have, I have turned and I have placed my affection, I have located my hopes in other things. Here's the good news that Isaiah brings. He says in verse six, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Oh, please do not let that arrive and pass you by. There is a restoration of all things that is coming. And it remains as a future hope for his people. And God invites us to come to him to receive it. So I, I wanna allow for us an opportunity for God's word to not return void, to accomplish its intentions, to reach into our lives, and produce responsiveness to sow seeds and bring about fruitfulness. And so if, if the Lord has placed upon your heart that you're not really in relationship with him, you, you, you haven't really received and accepted this good news, you haven't built your life and your hope upon, would you raise your hand if the Lord has moved upon you to respond to Christ this morning? Let me give us an opportunity. If you just raise your hand from where you are, now lead us in praying. Thank you. Thank you, man. Anyone else will respond to this invitation from our maker? Let's pray. Oh God, thank you that The reason you are good to us, the reason we can have a bright future is not in us. Lord, it doesn't come from just extrapolating the data of our lives. Lord, if we were to survey our choices, 
our decisions, the conditions of our heart, our waywardness. And if you were to just let things naturally play out and run their course, Lord, we would be without hope. We would remain lost. We would remain going our own way. But you came to us, God. You stepped into our world. You brought your renewal. You walked among us. And you brought us good news. And so, God, we turn to you. We look to you, Lord, whether for the first time or whether for the hundredth time, Lord, we, we locate our joy in you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you are making all things new. Would we trust you in this life? Would there be an endurance, a persistence that reigns in our hearts, that allows us to face all the challenges, all the trials, all the disappointments that we encounter, and it does not break us, it does not cause us to cave in or give up or give way to temptation in this short life that we live. May we endure onward all the way into eternity. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thank you so much. Be blessed this week. If you're here for the first time or have begun visiting us uh, the past several months or so, again, we would love for you to join us for lunch at room 204 upstairs. Uh, please join us for the newcomer's lunch.